Hi, I'm Mark Anielski. I'm the host of the Economy of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks for joining me today. My special guests today are Claudia Tordini and Richard Franklin. And both of these individuals approach me with a very interesting proposition that they are working with families in establishing well-being-based family trusts and financial architecture. What a fascinating idea. They join me today from their home in Alexandria, Virginia. Claudia Tortini provides coaching and consulting through their company called Apanage LLC. She consults with families on wealth and inheritance planning, helping families to design a family framework that supports well-being and flourishing. She brings together her background in business, humanistic psychology studies, and art that offers an integrated, positive approach to wealth and well-being. Claudia has pioneered a powerful model for using art and art experiences to facilitate learning and development for individuals and families. Her husband, Richard Franklin, is wealth and inheritance consultant with Appanage as well. Richard has practiced law as a trust and estates attorney for 30 years. His experience in working with wealthy families has been instrumental in informing his thinking and his work on behalf of Appanage on the broader subject of family wealth and inheritance planning. He has a keen interest in the intersection of well-being theory and inheritance planning. Richard has written and spoken extensively on estate planning topics. Their remarkable articles in the Bloomington newsletter are worth considering. Never have I seen a couple so articulate about the link between well-being and financial management and family trusts. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Claudia and Richard. Welcome, Claudia and Richard, to the Economy Wellbeing podcast. And it's very exciting to uh, have you in discussion about uh, your passion and, and uh, your work on family trusts and even the notion of well-being trusts. And I know when you reached out to me, I thought, wow, this is an amazing couple that are doing some incredible uh, work, which aligned with what I've been hoping would, would become a norm in in the financial world and the investment world. So thank you for joining me today. And maybe just do a bit of introduction as to who you are, your story, uh, what gets you up in the morning? Why are you excited about what you're doing and how well-being has resonated with you? Thank you, Mark, first of all, for inviting us and for having us here. It is our pleasure to be a part of your podcast. So thank you very much. Um, I will let Richard start. <laughs> okay. <laughs> With, you know, over my career, I've been a trust and estates attorney for a long period of time. And so I've, in one form or another, you might say I've been searching for a more positive approach to wealth and inheritance planning. Mm. You know, one that instead of being focused on being controlling or trying to manipulate beneficiaries one way or another, one that's positive, you know, that's um, inspiring even. And so we really think to put it very short terms that using well-being theory, you know, has really been a, um, a real boon for us mm -hmm. in thinking about how we can create a positive framework for families to use 
where wealth is a resource for well-being mm -hmm. and you know create a structure from there that's very positive and inspiring yeah and so that does get us up in the morning yes <laughs> um so I am not a lawyer and I'm not a trust and estate, you know, person, but um, I've done a lot of humanistic uh, psychology, you know, studies, and I am a coach. And uh, when Richard and I met, we started by accident talking about these things and it just grew organically in this way. Um, we are both very optimistic, positive, you know, people. We believe in human beings and we believe that having a positive outlook is much more productive than a negative. Mm, so, wonderful. So, Claudia, yeah. are you, are you a life coach? Or are you a, a leadership coach? What's when you say coach? Yeah, I am an, an executive coach. But my specialty is bringing art into uh, coaching, into anything that is experiential learning. So um, I teach at the university courses that are about developing emotional intelligence using art, developing relational skills using art, you know, um, anything that comes from experiential learning. Um, there's already so much that uh, mm. is for the intellect, you know, but uh, you can know a lot of things intellectually, but that doesn't mean that you can, you, you can, de you develop those skills. Mm. So um, I'm more focused on really the transformational aspect of learning, not that much the instructive aspect of it. Mm, wonderful. Well, people could see the beautiful painting. I assume you're I assume Richard didn't do that, but you did. Um, well, maybe Richard helped, but it's a beautiful painting if people could see it. Yes, he's the inspiration. <laughs> so, so tell me a bit about your practice. And I'm, I'm curious about how you, um, I mean, when I meet anyone who's actually studied the science, I used to put it in quotation marks of well-being and then gone as far as you are integrating into uh, practice and guiding uh, your clients in terms of making decisions aligned with this determinants of well-being. That's just, it's amazing to me. Like I've been dreaming about that for a long time, but you're actually doing it. And how did you, uh, yeah, how do you, how do you uh, speak to your clients about how they re they think about money and wealth and and really align it with the, the essence of well-being, which is, you know, I always said well-being is about your spirit, your soul, your the gifts you're given uh, that you incarnated on the planet with. And how often we lose we lose track of that. Well, I think, you know, for my clients, one of the entry points, I guess, for discussion frequently is, uh, you had mentioned Prince Charles earlier, something I call the Prince Charles effect. And I've done a lot of research on um, life expectancy data. And I would say one of the other sort of mantras in our practice is we wanted to be sort of research and data driven and not rely sort of on anecdotal ideas, which I think has been somewhat of the driving force in a lot of wealth and inheritance planning. And so going back to the, the idea of uh, the research under uh, life expectancy, the, the life expectancy for the affluent over the past 30, 40 years has really expanded dramatically. 
And so when I'm meeting with a couple today, I usually say, you know, one of you is going to live to be 100. And this is the, the analogy to Prince Charles is that, as you know, his mother is 95 now and he's 73. So she lives to be 100, which is likely. Yeah. Will become king at age 77. And there's a perfect analogy there to inheritance because if, um, if one of your parents is going to live to be age 100, you're going to inherit typically in your 70s. And you can think about what's the purpose of inheriting in the last quarter of life expectancy. Of course, it would be useful for retirement and so forth, but it may be more useful if it comes earlier sort of in the arc of life expectancy to be more supportive of your well-being. Mm-hmm. And you know, we can't even talk about it more, but one of the great models and how we actually got to looking at your work is the model of um, you know what some of the smart countries are doing in well-being mm. and, and trying to give the, the idea to families they can emulate that work and that research and science that backs up that work. Wow. So what you're saying is instead of waiting, hopefully for that inheritance or life insurance policy to come down when I'm 65, when I'm, I'm already tired by then. I mean, not retired, I'm tired. Uh, as opposed to when you're 35 and you're just married and you're, you got a mortgage and you got, wow, your expenses are, you know, you're struggling to put two or three jobs together. And, and there's your grandmother who's 95. Uh, you know, she's sitting on millions and, and she can't find a way of helping you secure a living wage even, or, or because maybe someone in your family said, well, that would be irresponsible. You don't give James, you know, a living wage just because grandma can do it. Uh, but so t- tell me what I mean, because I, I, we live that reality, we, you know, in our own families, we have these conflicts over inheritance and, and what are the conditions you help your clients see that there's actually, there's just a win-win-win scenario here where we share the, the wealth before we pass on uh, or before we claim that life insurance policy, if we ever would claim, life insurance, you know, um, what, what, Tell me your typical kind of client scenario where we have these conversations. And Well, I mean, exactly what you're saying. Um, so one of the, again, one of the entry points is I point to some of this data from life expectancy. There's a study that was published in the, the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2016. And it was a very, very large comprehensive data set that looked at life expectancy by percentiles of income. Mm. And it sort of measured what's the projected life expectancy from age 40. And so let me give you an example. Uh, let's suppose that in the family, one of the younger people is age 40 mm-hmm. and she's an English teacher. And suppose that as an English teacher, she's in Canada where they pay well and she makes $61,175 a year. That's the <laughs> wow. Uh, could you put some like two cents on that as well? No, just kidding. it's such a precise number, but so, I'm sure you'll explain why. But yeah, okay. And so, <laughs> at the the top one percent, um, the income is about one point nine million. Yeah. And at the ninety fifth percentile, it's two hundred and 
24 million or 224,000. Yeah. So the difference in life expectancy from our English teacher being at the median income to yeah. the percentile is about four to five years difference. Mm-hmm. So, and let's assume that in this family, the, the parents are not trying to encourage the, their daughter to make more money because she already feels like she's doing what she was really meant to do. But they can supplement her income, support her well-being. So let's say they bring her up every year to eighty thousand or hundred thousand. Yeah, brings her to to the ninety-fifth percentile in income. Yes. So imagine if she was forty, she's earning that median income of you know sixty-one thousand. And if she has to wait till her parents die in the inner seventies, then she's going to live 30 more years at that median income with a median life expectancy result. So mm-hmm. it's just a driven approach at life expectancy mm-hmm. by supplementing her income to bring her up to the 95th percentile, which is only 0.5% different than the 100th percentile, the, the very top 1% in, in terms of additional life expectancy. The study found that there's no... Um, satiation point on life expectancy, the greater the income, the greater the life expectancy, but it gets a smaller, you know, it gets smaller as you get up to the very high uh, levels of income. So just bringing her up to the 95th percentile gets her just four more us- years, statistically four more years of potential life. Yeah. 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 And, so, and the numbers are even more striking when you add the disability free life expectancy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because that you. still reduces it more. And, and just think in terms of our English teacher of all the different things that from 61,000 to 224, what that would pay for and what it would mean in her life, you know, um, from just being able to travel, maybe for inspiration, uh, to go to the Met once a year to see an opera, to go shopping at Whole Foods without feeling, you know, anxious and be able to, you know, buy better quality food. Have a better life insurance. Yeah. And And, sorry. In the United States to have access to quality health care. Right. You're probably not, you're struggling to provide just to have good health care coverage. So I I know I don't want to go too off on this tangent, but you know, the truth is that the the, the median household income of Americans isn't it what is it, sixty-eight thousand dollars or something or or less. And so we're talking about a teacher who's making almost the median income. And, and that means a lot of Americans are actually not even enjoying what, what even would be statistically a living wage. Mm-hmm. And so the distribution of that is troubling to me because yeah. Okay. If you have a million dollars in the bank and, or 2 million, uh, you know, you can live off the interest. You're fine. Right. Even if you live off 4% a year uh, as an annuity, but what about, you know, in the bell curve, all those people that aren't enjoying a living wage and the struggle that they're going through, they're not going to achieve that life expectancy. And I know I'm asking this almost like as if you were the president or something and saying, what, what would you, how do you help society realize the, you know, I'm saying there's a wasted human potential here by f- the fact that so many people live without a sufficient living wage. 
Anyways, it's just, I'm not I'm not expecting a response. I just I'm putting it out there because it's a big question about the question of equity and our uh, you know focus is really helping. You know, it's more focused on helping affluent families mm -hmm. use their wealth in a way that's productive and positive. But I will say, in response to your question, one of the reasons um, to really look to the data of some of the smart countries, like the Nordic countries, is that they do provide a very strong social safety net. And, and one of the things to consider in that is that they're not scared to do that. They're not afraid that that's going to make their citizens less productive or less engaged. In fact, it's just the opposite. Mm -hmm. They're doing it because they think their citizens are going to be more productive, add more to the economy. And so they have this robust system. And in the U.S. particularly, there's really no floor in the U.S. So, so to, I, I've explored with many American friends and I'm not bragging as a Canadian by any means because we have also high Gini coefficients or inequality especially where I live in Alberta, but I don't think America started off this way. It, it's like, there's a, there's a sense of entitlement that I can make as I'm entitled to be as rich as I possibly can. Cause that's the American dream. And yet when we look at cultures, the difference between, I think America say, or Japan or France or Denmark is like, there's a kind of a cultural agreement that the sharing of wealth, the sharing of prosperity is something that we just hold as, common sense shall we say and i would say that america started off the way but somehow we've slipped into this entitlement you know culture which is actually doing none of us any good what's your what's your thought on this question or so i'm not american <laughs> i know you're not claudia <laughs> I, I, I cannot speak of that. I do see a lot of differences um, between my culture and the American culture. But I think that one of the things that really surprises me here is the, the breadth of the charity and the giving back world. Mm, yeah. mm -hmm. Which is not the same. And, you know, I don't think we want to get deep into that. But uh, there is a big culture of giving back, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, especially from wealthy peoples and, and from corporations. Um, I don't think it is, you know, it's probably not the same effect of what you're talking about. Uh, and, and I know it is not. But I think every system, having lived in different countries, I know every system and culture is, you know, a, a whole right and so you you can't just have pick the best of if culture because then it would be you bring it all together and it maybe it's a mess mm. um what i think we have focused the most uh, in our case for example is that um in talking with parents that they believe in their children and that they trust their children because one of the things that happens a lot about why inheritance is given, you know, at the end of life is because there is this belief that money will ruin people, you know. Mm -hmm. And and actually talking with families, what we see is just talking about the idea that inheritance doesn't have to be at death. Mm -hmm. That already opens a lot of, you know, 
it, it calls for a lot of attention. And you start mm-hmm. seeing that in parents' nature to trust their children and to love and to give the best to them. But there's so much framework created by the system and society and by stigmas about wealth that it, you know, it doesn't help parents in trusting and giving to their children. And, but I would say that I would argue that what you're, I'm, I'm looking for, I'm scaling what you're doing, say that is also, I think, true of our society as a whole. Like we think that the poor are just maybe lazy. They live on welfare. They're, they just sit on the couch. And I think that's being a, disrespectful because I think people are motivated to work. They're motivated to be contributing society. So we're kind of behaving the same way in the family as we are as society. And that's why I think what you're doing is so exciting to encourage people because we do grow up in a stigma. I I grew up with, with a German father, like don't tell anyone how much you make, you know, be productive, be a hard worker, but don't talk about money because it's like, it's not respectful because you might gloat that you make more than somebody else. I'm like, no, let's talk about this now because the reality is now I have a mortgage and and now that mortgage is taxing because I have two young children and it's hard, but boy, would it be nice to be mortgage-free right now, wouldn't it? it? And what does that mean? It means I have more free time for my children. I can choose, one of us could stay home actually for the first 10 years of their life. Wow, would that be, and I'm like, that's it. That to me is why grandma gives us maybe just enough to pay the mortgage off. Um, absolutely. And, you know, there's so much that parents or grandparents can support their children earlier in their life. Like, you know, how about in line with what you're saying, you know, an extended maternity leave or an extended paternity leave. Or maybe a sabbatical, you burn out, Mm -hmm. you you know, like that happens normally in the 40s, right? Like, wouldn't it be, you know, great that you can take time off, stop, you know, going to that job that is really not healthy and helpful for you. You don't have to worry about, you know, money, bringing money to the house. And you can first you know, refresh yourself and then, you know, reorient or maybe go back to school, maybe a career change, you know, Mm. Uh, there's, I mean, there's so much that parents, you know, can help with earlier, say in their thirties or forties, you know, of their children. Um, And why not? There's no reason, you know, why not? I think the the data really, you know, reflects that, people who have good well-being are more productive. So instead of judging your children, how about being positive, provide a baseline level of support, bring them up, make sure they have good healthcare coverage, they live in a resilient, safe community, you know, they have um, the ability to live more sustainably, those kinds of things, which are can be very data-driven, just like we talked about with life mm-hmm. Not only do they have a better life, you know, well-being, but they have a better life expectancy as a result of doing those things. Yeah. Okay. And it's a much more, for the parent, it's a much more, think about it as you're the parent, to be positive and inspiring to your kids and model that kind of behavior is going to make you feel better. Right. 
So I have a question of practicality. You're sitting down with a family and, and three generations maybe. And um, do you like, I'm just pausing this is, do you go through like a scenario where, you know, Johnny wants just to be a rap musician and grandma goes, that's a useful, useless kind of profession. And but Johnny's a good rap musician. Right. And so Johnny's grandma says, Johnny, how much do you think you need to live? And he says, I could probably, I could probably live comfortably with $30,000, but you know, Johnny's only going to make 15 uh, best being a rap musician, but somehow within the family, it's like what I'm pausing is, could we actually have a scenario where we, we actually become each other's bankers? Like we help to finance the well-being and the aspirations we have, the passion we have. And I'm not saying being a believe, I don't think being a musician hundred percent is actually good either, but kind of a scenario where we all sit down and we talk about how much do we actually need to live? Okay. And pursue, right. The giftedness we were given. And we come to an agreement as a family. In other words, we don't wait to go to the bank for the mortgage. Grandma's the bank, right? Or could right. be the bank. Do you ever, do you have those kind of conversations? Um, yes. I mean, you know, there is like the English teacher example that Richard was talking about. Um, but the one thing that I want to clarify, and that's why we talk about well-being, you know, and, and we help families create the well-being framework and mm. the, the well-being trust has a lot of support for beneficiaries to, you know, increase their well-being. Well-being, as you will know, is a construct. It's not just being happy. It's not just doing what I want. Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Meaning and achievement and, you know, and, and engagement is, and feeling good, you know, is as important as, um, you know, just being happy. And so um, we like to, you know, talk in those terms because that also, it's a much more complex thing mm. that, oh, I'm just going to help you do, you know, your um music band you know <laughs> yeah um we aim to really uh increase well-being of the person in all its you know in all the domains mm, interesting yeah, including meaning and purpose and yeah. you know uh, finding that gift of yours but you know one thing that we might say to the grandmother is you know not necessarily to judge the rap music, you know, but to try to understand it. Yeah. Go yeah. It yeah. And really try to understand, you know, what it is, because, you know, many times you may think of the person surfing on the beach and not really understand what surfing is. What does it really mean to them? How does it speak to them? You know, maybe from an environmental, mm. there, there'd be all implications of, you know, finding within that person, what it means to them mm -hmm. and their depth of commitment to it. And there, you know, there's, there's lots of historic examples where people were, you know, gave a lot to the world, gave a lot to society, to humanity without having earned a lot. And so if you, you know, we talk in terms of equality of well-being as opposed to financial equality. Mm, fascinating. Your point about 
if you have family wealth, then you can use it to support everybody's well-being. And thinking of well-being as a you know a complicated construct, but right. So so help me because I've been working on this idea of a well-being digital platform. Uh, we'll call it soul printing. I think we talked about uh, the first time we spoke, and uh, I, I'm not selling you this platform. I'm just saying, uh, do you think there's room for in the measurement? in the realm of measurement to be able to self-assess our current well-being and then to identify areas we would like to grow into improving well-being. That could be like, I want to sleep better. I want to feel better physically. I want to eat better. I want to have more joy, more times of joy than non-joy. And I want to deal with my anxiety. Are, Are those the things that you think are part of the conversation when we're, when you're trying to, how people think about improving their well-being. Yeah, that's what we, you know, put in a, in what we call a, a wealth and well-being framework for the family. Ah. Uh, which is helping them identify what are those priorities within the different domains of of the well-being, you know, construct. Mm. And create a long-term plan. You know, we we believe in long-term. We don't believe in building things, you know, in a week. And so um, set priorities over time. And mostly is, you know, dedicate the budget to those different, you know, steps or activities. Interesting. Uh, Some of them may happen or not. Like, you know, we always recommend, you know, put a coaching, you know, fund. Yeah, that's right. Your children, each of them have 20, 25 grants that they could use on coaching, any type of coaching that they want. Right, know? right, you know, wow. Yeah, they can use it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, Fascinating. You know, like having all these tools available, you know, or budgeted for the family members that they can use in order to achieve those goals that they mm. have. Right. Um, and of course, also, very intentional family activities or engagements, you know, in order to build well-being. Mm. Um, Interesting. And I would, you know, sort of try to plant the idea of, you know, very intentional, specific, incremental improvement mm-hmm. and assessment. You know, so you're assessing at the beginning, you're assessing, you know, assessing annually. So even if it's just the healthcare coverage, which again, I know in Canada is so different than it is here in the United States, but just when you make an improvement to the healthcare that you actually objectively and subjectively determine that the improvement was beneficial. You know, the difference between the silver plan and the gold plan, you know, what objectively changed and then how did the person feel about it in their own skin? That's what matters most. Yeah. That's fantastic, yeah. And what their, you know, what their access better to healthcare. I mean, access here matters where you live, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because you can live in places where you you may have great coverage, but you just don't have access to the providers because you live in a sparsely populated place. Right. Well, you you raised that. You verified what I've been thinking about on this well-being. uh, I call it a you know, it's a, it's a smart contract kind of platform where I had this vision of young Jimmy at seven, just starting off in life, 
builds a friendship with old Jimmy, who's in a, who's 75 in a, in a, you know, old age home. And the two enter into a relationship of trust and they mutually are increasing their subjective well-being. Mm-hmm. But what's people say, well, there's no business model in it. I said, no, I think there is because old Jimmy's on heart medication, you know, you know, he's drugged up and, and his ankles hurt. And, but two weeks onto this relationship, he goes for his checkup and the doctor says, what's going on? Your blood pressure's down. I'll take you off some meds here. So there's actually a personal benefit realized in cash savings for old Jimmy and young Jimmy. He's just starting off. He's just like waking up to being a human being and he's sharing the wisdom with old Jimmy. Right. And I thought, why can't this be an amazing new economy of mutuality? And, and on, you know, on the back end, you're actually saving not just old Jimmy's personally, but you're saving the whole healthcare system money. Yeah. I, well, you know, Martin Salgman, the, is a, a doctor of you know, psychology at UPenn, is sort of the father of positive psychology and thinks of, of uh, positive psychology and well being theory a 500 year idea like the Renaissance. <laughs> That's right. And his, you know, one of the things he says is, you know, that basically we can make basically all the aspects of society an engine of well being. Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about is in the context of that uh, digital space, you know, making that an engine of well-being. Mm-hmm. And we think of this, and I've spent a lot of time thinking of making trust, re-engineering them, reimagining them in a way where trusts are an engine of well-being as opposed to a manipulative and controlling, you know, legal arrangement. And it's called trust. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's irony. Uh, Gladie, I was going to ask you this, but you know, if you, you've studied the science of well-being and we know that life satisfaction actually follows this happiness curve, you know, it starts to decline around puberty and it bottoms out around 45. So, you know, I often joke, I, I look at a room and I, and I say, uh, who, I, I just make a, a profile, um, who hears, you know, 45, cause I know that's the bottom of their happiness curve. Right. Now it's not, <laughs> it's not maybe a big decline from you know when you were 12 but it still looks pretty bad right and, and the, so that follow and then at 70 you're you're basically back at where you were at when you were 12 uh so i'm curious when you're coaching and you're you're talking to a 47 year old woman and i can just imagine what you're talking about right um can you give me a glimpse of what that looks like and how as a coach you you talk about what are you going to do for the the latter part of your upward sloping happiness curve, because actually things are going to get better because that's what the science says. Um, I don't put it in those terms. I think that's kind of about the age when a person it's starting to um, realize that she has her own identity, you know, that you know, she actually has specific skills, specific aspirations that she wants to fulfill. And, you know, that has emerged enough so that, you know, it's making trouble uh, because it wants, it can't be, you know, kept. Mm, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
covered anymore. And so is that realization. And that realization is scary, but it brings happiness. Mm. That because it's like, you know, someone who's been underwater and suddenly is like <gasps> a big, you know, <laughs> breath <laughs> of life. Wow. So I can't be myself. What? So I, you know, and, and so I call that the inflection point. Mm. You know, it doesn't mean that it's easy from there. <laughs> no, it's not easy. But it's a it's a different level of uh, being, you know, and thinking, and you know, and it might take years from there to materialize, you know, to some mm-hmm. of the, uh, these deep aspirations. But it's in the right direction. Mm. So that's wonderful. I, you know, I kind of set you up for that perfect home run. But okay. <laughs> so I'm curious, again, going back to the, the progression of happiness over life and when you're dealing with your clients. So we know, I've just, we know that when you're, you know, seven to 12, you're at the highest point of happiness probably that you will be until you're old again. Uh, and maybe not quite as high when you're old. And so when you're talking to a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old, do you pay attention knowing that your clients will exhibit certain characteristics that reflect that age cohort and well-being? Are you, are you cognizant of that? Because I think that matters when we're guiding our clients or we're looking at a whole society and like, how many 20-year-olds are in this community in Arlington, Virginia, right? Because if I know 25% of the population are 20 to 25-year-olds, I actually have a sense of what their well-being needs will be. Right. But uh, one of the things that uh, we do uh, bring to parents and grandparents' attentions is not just the difference in age, but the generational difference. Mm. Mm-hmm. I grew up with grandparents who escaped the war and were immigrants. And of course, you know, their goals were having a house and food and, you know, raising a family. Yeah. I grew up two generations later. That wasn't my concern. My concern was like, I want to actualize my potential. So, so just situate your grandparents escaped from Italy from the war or where? They, yeah, they went, they moved from Italy to Argentina. Yes. Just like my father left Germany at 1953, right? At the end of the war to build a better life. So it's interesting. We have, we have common, you know, ancestral kind of stories. Why, why did so-and-so leave and for a better life? And here we are the first or second generation now. Right. But a better life means something different for every generation, you know, mm-hmm. wealth a lot, because one thing is the generation who created the wealth that maybe struggle and maybe it was the effort of their life to create that wealth. And different is the story of the one who already grew up, you know, with wealth. Mm. So, um, you know, being able to translate that difference is important. Right, right. Yeah. So paying attention to culture, 
uh, and our history is important. Again, and to the, where yeah. the world is, you know, it, it, we are in a different space than what we were 40 years ago, you know, and in a way the parents were responsible to changing the world and bringing those changes, you know. So they hand it to the children. They can't expect the children to behave exactly like them because they are starting in a very different place. Right, right. And Richard, what's your story? Uh, my, you know, ancestors immigrated to the United States, you know, many generations before, pre-Civil War, I think, you know, but- uh, From? I think from England and Ireland, you know. Okay, yeah. The potato famine. Kind potato of famine, there you go. See, we're all Irish. Like we're- <laughs> To the new world for a better life. So, you know, and, you know, I think it, what Claudia was talking about is very interesting and in that people today, you know, a hundred years ago, people married for survival, right? They wanted someone strong. Oh yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> married for, to self-actualize right mm -hmm. you know someone who can help you transcend and, mm -hmm. and get divorced for the same reasons right and uh, right so you know that understanding that not only generations have a different age so they are a different stage in their life but also the world is changing constantly so each new generation it's starting at a different level mm. But that is, in fact, one of the things that, you know, we, we want to tell um, wealthy families, which is, you know, there's this idea that children have to struggle, you know, to learn, uh, to become productive and to, you know, be engaged. Um, but you don't want everybody to go back to zero all the time, you know. No. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you can, you know, set your child to start in, you know, step three or five, you know, why not doing that? Why not thinking that the struggles are going to be different? There's, there's still going to be a struggle, sure. right? Grow and living is a struggle and, you know, actualizing, you know, uh, bringing your, your mission and actualizing that it's hard. Um, why don't we think of where they are going to end rather than where they start? Because if they can start a couple of steps above, you know, they can also end a few steps, you know, above. And if you know of Maslow's pyramid of needs, for example, it ends with self-actualization and self-transcendence. So why not thinking that, you know, you launch your child to start in step, you know, in the middle, and then you help them sexualize, self-transcend. And from there, you know, the world receives benefits too. Well, that's, I think, you know, I actually, uh, this, this, this may be new to you, but it turns out Abraham Maslow came to my province, Alberta, and he learned from the Blackfoot, the circle of life, the, the medicine wheel. So, in fact, it wasn't a pyramid. It was a circle. Really? Yeah, that's blew me away. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why is it we always have, like the colonizing culture always turns things into pyramids. And the painting behind you shows circle. So 
what does that mean in, in the in the circle of life or the image of the human being the mind is to the north spirit in the east to the south is physicality and to the west is emotion now they say life then is a continual turning of your medicine wheel moving through time and space and we hope that our medicine wheel are is balanced like a tire Otherwise we're lopsided. If we're spiritually got some, you know, whatever issues, we're going to be lopsided as physically healthy as we, we can, we are. And I think that for me, that's like such a beautiful image that each of us is a spinning wheel and we're, we're just in motion, like a dance with each other. Mm-hmm. And we almost have a, a responsibility to help each other's wheel be in harmony. Right. And, as opposed to like self-actualization being the, the apex of our aspiration. It, yeah, it speaks more of an individual path. Right. And I, I think mean, about that because it, you spend up to 45 years or 50 years of age just getting to the middle level where your mortgage, I was like, I love the word mortgage, death pledge, you know, you're mortgage free. And, yeah. and, I, and I think I've told this story as like, you know, I, we were mortgage free when I was 40. Well, what did that as a business person? What does that mean? It's like, it means I, I make I have a thousand dollars more a month. That was back in the day when mortgages were eight percent, you know, and so that was a great freedom of knowing I had all this now discretionary time that I could just just relax and not buy more stuff, take on more debt. It was a big choice because I had to make it rationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, it was the most amazing experience, of, of course, of my life, because I meant that I had, I didn't have to take on as much work of billable hours as I had before. And then I wish that all my neighbors could have that experience, be mortgage-free when you're 40. Mm-hmm. But it was only because of my mother-in-law that that happened, mm-hmm. to your point of your work. And why would she be so crazy to extinguish her mortgage out of her generosity? When we could have waited till she was 95, she will, believe me, she'll live till she's 95. She's so amazing. But right, it's like, so your story is my lived experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we believe there's a lot to that. Yes. And, and that, you know, in your example, being mortgage-free most likely freed you up to do things that were really meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. Yes. So many people have to work you know, a good portions of their life and expend a lot of their life energy on doing something that they really don't find that meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Are you thinking about what idea, product or service you want to bring to humanity and being able to spend more time on that, that really feeds your spirit? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, truly, you know, maybe you wouldn't have been able to develop all this well-being, you know, um Uh, absolutely i wouldn't be doing the work i'd still be working my government job i i I remember sitting there one day and it was a 15-year pin ceremony coming up and i was 13 years in and i'm like i'm out i gotta get out now because (laughs) if i don't get out now i'm just gonna look at you know the numbers and go i'll stay for another 10 years and then i'll get my number right i'll get my pension Mm-hmm. No, it was the best thing. It was the hardest thing I could ever do because it was terrifying to be a consultant, but it, it was the best thing that ever happened. 
and you're right. I would have never written a book called Economics of Happiness. I would have never studied well-being. Right. None of those things probably would have happened because I would have been a good bureaucrat, crunching numbers as an economist, and presumably happy. But no. So, so that is that you know it's the creativity that you bring that you wouldn't have been able to you know actualize or materialize. Exactly. Yeah. One of the, I think, really brilliant thoughts that Claudia's had is when you help someone, like the way you're describing your grandmother did. Um, my mother-in-law, not my grand, not even my grandmother. <laughs> my grandmother was poor. <laughs> so when she helps somebody like that, she helps them self-transcend. Yeah. So, and what a gift that is to the world. Right. You know, not your gift of doing your work around well-being and the you know what you've done but her gift to you was indirectly a real gift to the world right right but she might have been chastised within her own family structure for being that's irresponsible why give them a fair shake why give that couple of of all her children uh, uh, I, <laughs> no my mother she was the editor of my book she's amazing right and she lives like five blocks away like so it's i've but, seen it among my clients that some of them get to that what we're talking about sort of naturally right. some of them just you know naturally had an idea that you know that was the right direction and to be positive and, mm -hmm. and to be encouraging so what it, it really is encouraging to help someone that way yeah that's why I'm so excited. We have, we mutually have such great stories to tell and, and be encouraging, right? And saying it might feel crazy and scary to do this, but, and it's like, don't give them too much. Just like give them just enough or give them what they think they would need to be free of whatever they're feeling cumbered by. Because as business people, I, I always start a business perspective, startup conversation with how much money does everyone here need? to be happy or to be comfortable. And then we can negotiate how much of the shared revenues we will take because, you know, you might need a hundred thousand and I'll actually only need 55,000 because I'm debt free. Mm -hmm. I'm like, do I, will I, but will I be comfortable that my colleagues making a hundred thousand, even though we're both generating the revenue to get that, that's where it gets difficult perhaps. But those are the tough conversations that we often don't have. And I think what a great way to start a business when you're having that kind of conversation. Well, if you yeah. change the conversation to, to, are you finding meaning in life? Yeah. Then you have a better, you know, plane to look at whether mm -hmm. equality, I guess. Equality right, right, right. Becomes wow. your rather than, are you earning a million dollars versus a hundred thousand dollars? Right. Yeah. That's why we bring the conversation to equality of well-being within mm. the family, right? So wonderful. And and some families, you know, they are naturally like even siblings say, you know, I don't need that much help my brother or my sister who needs, you know, more. So it is part of human nature, you know, to at least with the people we love, right? Mm-hmm. That's been in the. It's an old story, but it's in. Uh, it's in a you know, 
in a magazine that it's about Warren Buffett's daughter coming to ask his father. I know, I know that story. <laughs> I need to remake For TV, it. right? For television or something. Or... No, no, no. Her kitchen. She went, well, I don't know. Oh, kitchen, a new kitchen. It's in, it's in Fortune magazine, yeah. And he told her, go to the barn. Talk to the barn. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, wow. Well, so that's the other extreme, the one that yeah. we suggest. But I think but, even when you're, you know, you're taking our advice, part of it is that, that you can do the, you know, sort of transmitting wealth earlier in time, but you can do it in a way that is more data driven, you know, to hit, you know, key well-being elements and make that, you know, sort of the mantra that this is, you know, you know, would be a good way to use the money and make that part of the family's ethic. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, you can have money to be inspired. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and having that is something that not everybody in the world has. Yeah. That's a great use of money as well. Wow. But there's so many data-driven ways to you spend money positively. You know, like on experience, there's there's always a lot of discussion about negative spending, mm -hmm. but there's not very much focus on positive spending. Mm. And there is data now to sort of give you an idea of positive ways that are going to add joy to your life. And I, I think that's a great way of uh, of concluding our conversation. I know we could talk for hours, but uh, you know, I've I think I've read it correctly that you know you what what you what you remember about life is the experiences, right? The places you went, the food you ate in Italy or the sunsets you saw. And I love, that's why I love the word recreation or recreation because, and we often find when we go into nature. So it's those, it's like life is this, like, you know, this celebration of, of experiences. Uh, and that's what we take with us and we remember and we, we, we can never quantify it. We can certainly tell the stories. And um, so my final, my final question I often ask is, so given what we're in, like we're in this global pandemic, it's, it seems to be going on and on. What, what gives you hope? Um, <laughs> the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... Uh, we are optimistic, you know, we are positive and we believe in positivity and um, even the bad times like the pandemic brought us a lot of good things like having the girls staying with us for a few months. Mm, nice. And before. Um, There's got to be stories all over the world of yeah. families being brought closer together and really- Isn't that true, right? Wow, yeah. So there's definitely some positive. Yeah, but resilience. <laughs> resilience, there you go. <laughs> wow. But I, I think the work we do also gives us hope uh, because we are betting on a positive, you know, outlook and on positive things, which at the end of the day, it's, it's also love, you know, um, within the family, right? Mm. We can see that connect with people. Mm -hmm. People are looking for a positive framework for 
how to use wealth within a family. And so this is something that does resonate with people. Yeah. Wonderful. And we and we and also art gives us a lot of hope. We take a lot out of art. Um, a lot of positive emotion, a lot of um, a lot. We believe in art and we we invest in art and we take time with art. Wonderful. And do you do art together? Uh, we we do art together, but each of us on their own thing. Oh, excellent. Wow. Studio nights and time. <laughs> I think we're all closet artists. I, I also paint, well, once in a while, like watercolor, but not as vibrantly as I, I was like, wow, that is, I'm envious. You can put that much color on a yeah. canvas. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of activities that we recommend for families around art. And one of the yeah. things that with my adult daughters is sort of a whole weekend experience around art and finding your unique gifts or sort of imagining your best self, you know, that mm. technology and, you know, uh, intervention and, you know, where we did paintings and writings, you know, sort of imagining our best self in the future and then reflecting wow. the group. And so there's lots of ways to use art that, you know, mm -hmm. really engender positivity and being able to do something in a way that's not, um, in a family group where you're not being judgmental, you know, you're giving everybody an opportunity to really think about themselves and express themselves. Right. Right. Wow. Well, thank you, Richard and Claudia. That was, that was wonderful. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you for sharing your wisdom and joy and hope and, um, and your amazing work. It's just so, I'm, I'm just thrilled that you're in the world. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah, we appreciate a lot. You're, you know, 